We come this morning in our continuing series in the book of Leviticus to Leviticus chapter 2. And our New Testament complementary passage will be Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to skip down to verses 9 through 13. So with your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12, in honor of God's word, please stand. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then moving down to verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Leviticus chapter 2. Continuing in the reading of God's word. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it should be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing word, for the Christ who is revealed in it. 
Make us alive to it by your spirit, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So, William Shakespeare, in his play, As You Like It, famously gave the line, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players. Each has his part. And Jacques' point, when he says that, is that you and I are not in control of events. All we can do is respond. We can only play the part that providence gives us to play. We can only play the part that we can play today. I can't undo the part I played yesterday. I can't guarantee the part that I will play tomorrow. But right now, right now, I play a part. And right now, I have control over that part. And right now in this intersection of time between God and His Word is when that part is nourished, a little breath blown on it, begins to flame up again. And we all need stories. We, we all have stories. We are stories. We're the story of our family or of our everything. We're the story of everything. We have inputs into that story. Now, as I was thinking this week about this passage, I was thinking, that's really, isn't it what media does? The news cycles? They speak either reinforcing my own story or correcting my story, or guiding my story. But, but they kind of almost function as priests. <laughs> and I can pick my priests to guide me in how to navigate the city of man. And you can pick your priests that will guide you in how to navigate the city of man. And the thing that drew my mind to that was this. You know the, if you took journalism in high school, the five questions of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why. And how much of our media is all about the why? The bomb went off. But why? The tragedy happened. But why? The school was shot. But why? And we argue about the why. And we line up around the why. And the whys are important. The whys have impact. I'm not denying. But do you notice how every single day that buzz... <laughs> Of why, 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 why. Just keeps on and on and on. But there's a different story. 
There's a different story that I want to invite you into. And it's a story that ends up in absolute, well, sorry, back up. It's a story that begins in absolute darkness. And it ends with you and me sparkling. That's a cool story. That's a story that belongs to another realm. That's a story that belongs to a different city. There's a city of man, and that city of man is important. It's a city in which you and I live. It's a city in which you and I engage, but you and I can live and you and I can engage only as we are grounded in the city of God. Only as we are extensions of the city of God. Otherwise, everything that we share, everything that we reflect, everything that we project... Everything that we send forth is poisoned. And I don't care what your politics are. We poison it all. Everything we touch, we poison. And today's justice will be tomorrow's crime. Because we're sick. But there's a place of healing. There's a place, there's a kingdom... That has no end. There's a king who is today reigning on a throne. And as you and I reorient ourselves in that story, we take into that other kingdom joy and light and life and love and peace. Our story begins in Genesis with, of course, the brokenness. The sin begins all the way back with a promise given to Adam and Eve. I'm going to send a child. I'm going to send a son. It's a promise every Hebrew woman prayed for. That's why barrenness, apart from being a personal issue for many women, for a Hebrew woman, was a particular tragedy. Because her hope was that she might give birth to the child. That hope and that promise. It begins all the way back there. It continues. We've been seeing through the Exodus and the Pentateuch already the hope and the promise that's given to the patriarchs. God continues to say to through Moses to the children of Israel, for the sake of my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm doing these things. But it's a promise that for us, in our story, in the Pentateuch, really begins with a bush that won't burn up. That glorious image of the burning bush. Do you remember where that was? It was on this very mountain. This was the mountain where God said, this bush will not be consumed. Go and get my people and bring them right here to worship me. And he brought them there and he delivered them with some magnificent signs and wonders. Rivers turned into blood and frogs and darkness and the death of firstborn. That story begins there with a burning bush, but it continues for us in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. But Exodus closes with Moses, the firstborn son, standing outside the tabernacle. God has created Eden. He's created the Holy of Holies. He's created this golden place. And the firstborn son is outside. So we turn to Leviticus. And Leviticus chapter 1 is a grotesque chapter. If you were here with us last week, you remember... Two Home Depot-sized buckets full of blood for every cow. This gory, blood-drenched spectacle leads to chapter 2. A chapter in which the key elements are grain, oil, frankincense, fellowship, the sweet food offering, the sweet-smelling aroma. All of these things are the result of a life made at peace with God. Do you see that in the text? You know, the Old Testament serves, I think, a lot like Shadow puppets. I used to be fascinated with shadow puppets. I, I, I would, if, if anybody could do shadow puppets, my, mine was like this mutant deformed duck. That was the best I could ever do. My shadow puppet technology was horrible from the get-go, and it's never gotten any better. But whenever somebody could do the eagle flying up in the sky and all that stuff, sitting around the campfire, the light, in a dark living room, shining off the wall. Why do shadow puppets interest us? If I wanted to see a deformed duck, just draw me a picture of a deformed duck. Don't try to make your fingers into a deformed duck. Shadow puppets, I think, fascinate us because they fire the imagination. They fill us with a sense of wonder. And that's what the Old Testament is. These signs are like shadow puppets. They're shadow puppets that remind us not just that there is peace and fellowship after the great sacrifice, that there's love and harmony, but then the entire ethic of the New Testament. Is that not what being a light means? Is that not what shining it out means? Which brings us to our second point, which is your response. Now, there's an interesting verse in here that if you've been with us through our entire series that began in Exodus, the astute amongst you will say, Aha, I have noticed a new verse. <laughs> a new element that God seems to take really, really seriously that we've never discussed before. And that's found in verse 13. In verse 13, it is clearly a critical part of peace offerings with God 
And it is told that this is going to be a critical part for the rest of the time you're bringing offerings to God. The rest of the time. Salt will not be left out of your peace offering. Now, theologically, and that's where your commentators go, theologically, this is a well-recognized ancient Near East practice. It's a practice of fellowship and food. Uh, it indicates fellowship and food. Also, salt has a purifying uh, quality to it. It is also, it pops up in a couple of other places uh, of interest in your Bibles. One is in Numbers chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, where we read, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give it to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. By the way, this is the setting aside of the Levites. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And then he goes on. This is part of setting aside the eternal priesthood of the Levites. The, the second time it's brought up is in Second Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 5. That's a cool story in and of itself. Uh, and, and this is a, a story in which uh, Jehoshaphat, sorry, uh, the, the uh, story is that Jehoshaphat calls out the Israelite king and says, God gave the kingdom to Judah, and he did it as a covenant of salt. And God then bring, raises up the kingdom of Judah, the armies of Judah, and they overthrow the numerically superior army of Israel in response to that eternal covenant of salt. But all that aside, and that's important, because if you heard anything in there, then you heard an eternal priesthood and an eternal king are signified by the covenant of salt. And so... That, that's significant, and you can develop that a little bit. But you, where my mind went on this was, what happens when you throw salt in a fire? And so I thought, well, I didn't see anything in any of my commentaries about that, and so I decided to do an experiment. And after my wife told me not to do the experiment in her kitchen anymore, I decided to move it to a little fire pit. And I took me a handful of kosher salt, and I lit me a fire, and I sat out there with my salt, and I tossed it in the fire. And you know what? It sparkles. Salt tossed in a campfire goes, just like one of those sparklers on the 4th of July. And I imagine the salt that they found around those days probably had impurities in it. May have even made cool colors. I don't know. I had iodized kosher salt. That was what I had. Wasn't going into the research that deeply. But a God who loves visual effects, a God who divides oceans so his people can walk through a dry land, a God who speaks in thunder, Fire and earthquake on Mount Sinai. A God who loves visual effects gives to you the one at peace with him a pretty cool visual effect. Every peace offering ever brought since sparkled. 
And I think that's what your response and my response can be in this amazing story. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that you and I presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship, is articulated, is lived in genuine love, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor, do not be, to not being slothful in zeal, being fervent in spirit. We've been going through the cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's well-known book in the adult Sunday school portion. And one of the things that he emphasized is that the cost of discipleship, and the call to discipleship, is an intensely personal thing. It's an intensely individualizing thing. When Christ says, you can't have father, mother, sister, brother, reputation, anything before me, he's carving away absolutely everything else. Because at the end of the day, my wife doesn't stand before God for me. And when I stand before him, it's not going to be to blame her for making me mad, for not loving me like she should have. (laughs) All those things, it's between you and God. Beloved, if you have this mediator who is risen, if you have this mediator who calls you to discipleship, and that's of the essence of the call. It's a call not to some mental affirmation. It's a call for you to bend the knee. For you to follow him. Jesus is absolutely clear. We looked at a passage this morning in Mark where Jesus' disciples are terrified. He set his face to Jerusalem, and they're afraid. And in his response to them, he does nothing to alleviate their fears. The passage goes on to say he told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, and he told them what he was going to suffer, And he told them that he would die. And he told them that he would rise again. And he told them, follow me. He told them, your worst nightmares are going to come true. But I'm going to rise again. Follow me. And that night they all fell away. They didn't see it. They swore they thought the dying was spiritual. Beloved, if he died for you and for me, he is risen. And he is risen indeed. And so how much you and I, his children, his followers, should be confident in every storm, should be delighting to show ourselves as living sacrifices, to offer ourselves, which is our reasonable service. I don't have much wisdom for that other kingdom, that city of man, but I do know, beloved, that the risen and reigning Jesus Christ has accomplished 
this piecemeal that you see in Leviticus 2. Think how beautiful that smell. Frankincense. He just loves the smell. It obviously isn't a cooking spice. (laughs) He just loves the smell. And he loves the smell of your service, childlike as it may be. Your obedience, halting as it may be. But beloved, if you and I live here, then he promises that our lives will sparkle.